uh, I had thought considerably about some issues in the last week or so, and lo and behold, when I talked with Marla a while this morning, I found we'd been thinking along the same lines, and uh, I thought, well, this is probably an individual that I might have simply passed over uh, in this particular series, not considering him one of our uh, forefathers that we could look to. And yet, when I began thinking about it, I began to realize that uh, there is very, very much here that has to do with us, and it becomes a very important individual in history and in prophecy, and for you and me today. So, whatever part we're on on the Father's series, we're going to entitle this, along with that enumeration, Judas our close brother, Judas, our close brother, title for today's sermon. I don't think any of you or I ever considered Judas a close brother. In fact, he has been a subject of ridicule, a subject of uh, consternation and frustration uh, and accusation, uh, always, it seems, uh, so, what do I mean by this? Let's get into it a little bit. I won't turn to a couple of scriptures, but <clears throat> Christ began calling His disciples very early in His ministry. <clears throat> Matthew 4, uh, He called uh, four fishermen there. And then uh, in 9 and verse 9, He called Matthew a tax collector. And Mark 2 mentions that He called Levi another tax collector. So, Fishermen and tax collectors and that type of people are the ones that Christ called. I think one place mentions another brother there who was a fisherman as well. But he didn't mention, I don't guess I'd ever considered this, he didn't mention all the disciples and how he called them and who they were. Uh, for instance, uh, Bartholomew and Judas himself are not listed as uh, where they were or how he called them or what their occupation might have been. So he gave a sampling of those whom he was calling, but he did not enumerate them all in any of the four Gospels. Let's pick it up in Matthew 10 today. <clears throat> Matthew 10. And when he had called to him his twelve disciples, he gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. So, these are powerful spiritual gifts which Christ uh, laid on these disciples. Now, the names of these twelve apostles, he said he called the disciples, and now he is calling them apostles. So, he uh, gave them a commission, uh, which is an ordination here. Simon called Peter, Andrew his brother, Simon listed first, Peter, because he would be the physical head of the church under Christ, and that's made very clear, uh, and Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, and Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew the publican, James the son of Alphaeus and Labius, whose surname was Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. So he names the twelve here, and 
Judas Iscariot is named among them. Now, I don't know whether you ever thought about this or not, but Judas was included in this calling, in this commission, and in the powers that were given and granted by Christ. Did you ever realize that Judas was a minister of Christ <laughs> uh, from the very beginning when this commission was given? Let's go on. These twelve, that includes Judas, Emmanuel sent forth and commanded them, saying, Go not into the way of the Gentiles, and enter, and into any city of the Samaritans enter you not, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils, freely you have received, freely give. And he gives them some more instruction there. Now, did Judas go on to fulfill that commission? No, it was truncated in the betrayal of Christ. So the disciples never did, or these apostles, from that point until Christ uh, was killed and resurrected, uh, were not yet ministering and fulfilling this commission. They were still with him as learners, being taught the ropes, how to go about it, what to do, and the spiritual lessons they needed to learn, and the conversion that would eventually come. Realize that at this point, even though he had given them a commission for the future, they were not even yet converted. Because Peter, when he betrayed Christ himself later on, was told, when you were converted, feed my sheep. So, they were not even converted at the time of Christ's death. They became converted shortly thereafter, and the Holy Spirit was sent there in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost. But he was included in those who were given a commission. So, we see a clue here that Christ calls, and he said many would be called and few chosen even here in the end time. So, he called Judas along with the others, and Judas had opportunity, just like the others had, okay? And was given a future commission, which, had he stayed straight, could have been fulfilled. We have been called and commissioned to be bride of Christ, and most of us, I hope, will succeed in that, although there is a possibility of not enduring to the end and of failure occurring. Even as Paul said of himself, he wasn't once saved, always saved. But even after preaching as he, an apostle for all those years, he says he himself could still become a castaway. Uh, because human nature and Satan are pretty pervasive and pretty powerful in our lives. Anyway, let's go on to Matthew 26 and see more of the story of Judas in particular here. Notating, however, that he was included among the twelve, along with that commission. So in Matthew 26, let's go to verse 14. Then one of the twelve, so here he again is included as one of the disciples named Apostles. He was an apostle. I don't know that I ever really focused on that, Judas being an apostle. I guess I assumed, of course, that he was, but uh, my focus narrowed somewhat. Uh, in thinking about today's sermon. 
So here is one of the twelve, the apostle Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said to them, What will you give me? And I will deliver him to you. So he knew that they wanted to take Christ. They had endeavored to kill him over and over and over again. And he thought, here is an opportunity. I can make myself a little money on the side. So he went to them and says, what will you give me if I deliver him? And they made a deal for 30 pieces of silver. And from that time, he sought opportunity to betray him. So Judas did this, knowing what he was doing, uh, having made the deal and received the money. They paid up front, and usually uh, hitmen maybe get part of it up front, and then they get the rest when the job is done. But they apparently gave uh, Judas the full amount uh, at the time they made the deal. So, from that time forward, he was looking for an opportunity. It did not come until it was time, but come it did. Have you ever noticed how easily it is, or easy it is, to get into a sinful thought pattern or sin? Uh, There's a proverb, I think we read recently in a Bible study, that says that the trouble comes like a man makes water. Trouble just comes on you so easily, like needing to urinate. It's just it's a natural thing that just occurs in the human mind and psyche. Uh, and once you begin thinking that way, you simply forget about God while you're in sin mode. It's after the sin has occurred often, or at least thinking of sin, whether or not the actual physical sin occurs, but your mind will go off and forget about God. It's as if you suddenly shut Him out and nothing matters except what is in front of you that you desire to partake of. And it's only later that you begin to wake up and realize, oh my, what did I, what was I thinking? What was I doing? Uh, sometimes that revelation doesn't come until after the fact. Haven't we all looked at ourselves and our lives and say, what was I thinking? What was going on here? But once you get into that mode, it seems like that's kind of where the mind tends to stay until something is resolved. You either come to your senses or you go through with what it is that you were thinking of doing. Let's go on down to, oh, about verse 20 here. Um... The disciples did as Emmanuel had appointed them, and they made ready the Passover. So Passover was coming. He had told them to prepare for it. Now when the evening was come, he sat down with the twelve. And as they did eat, he said, Truly I say to you, that one of you shall betray me. And they were exceeding sorrowful, and began every one of them to say to him, Lord, is it me? Now, apparently, they understood their nature enough that they questioned themselves even here. Is it me? Uh, We need to be attuned to ourselves enough to know that anything is possible with us. 
And he answered and said, He that dips his hand with me in the dish, the same shall betray with me, or betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It had been good for that man if he had not been born. Now, Judas was to directly betray Christ to the death. And you might say, certainly, that uh, considering that, maybe it been better had he not been born. Well, who of us has not betrayed Christ? Who of us has not? And if we betray Christ and we stay in that mode and go into the lake of fire, would it be better had we not been born? I would rather not have been born than to suffer that fate. Because that is not going to be a pleasant time. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, crying and screaming when that occurs. Anyway, going on down to verse 31. Then said Emmanuel to them, All you shall be offended because of me this night. Now, it wasn't just one who would turn from him. Now, Judas betrayed him directly to those who would kill him. But he said, You're all going to be offended of me this night. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. And did they not all scatter when he was taken? Uh, they saw what was about to be done to him, and suddenly they didn't know him. <laughs> uh, when trouble comes, people tend to run. By nature, we're cowards. We will try to get away from trouble in any way we can. So, that's what happened. On down in verse 45, uh, he had gone and prayed and they couldn't sit and stay awake uh, and pray with him or be thinking of him. They were tired. They went to bed. So he went through this agony all by himself. Then he came to them uh, and found them asleep in verse 43. Their, their eyes were heavy, and he left them and went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. So what was heavily on his mind, he prayed over and over again. He knew he was about to die. He knew his father would reject him. He knew all mankind would reject him and betray him. So he kept praying the same prayer. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Sleep on and take your rest. Uh, too late now to do me any good. Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. And they, they who took him were sinners. And all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Are we beginning to see a little bit how Judas is our brother? We are all like Judas. Rise, let us be going. Behold, he is at hand that does betray me. So he who had left, been given the sop and told to go, had come back. And while he was speaking, lo, here comes Judas, one of the twelve came, and with him a great multitude with swords and sticks from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now he that betrayed him gave them a sign and told them, Whoever I shall kiss, that same is he, hold him fast. And that was the signal. When I kiss someone, that's the one you want. 
And forthwith he came to Emmanuel and said, Hail, Master. Now there's a hypocritical thing for you. Hail, Master. I'm your loyal, faithful servant. You're my master. I'm your servant. What a way to address him. You know how people will speak kindly to your face and stab you in the back? Have you ever experienced that? Well, that's exactly what Judas did. Very, very much human nature here to call him master to his face. I'm your faithful servant. Yeah, right. And kissed him. And Emmanuel said to him, Friend, wherefore are you come? Then came they and laid hands on Emmanuel and took him. And behold, one of them uh, struck at the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. That's not part of this story at this point. But this is what had occurred. So he was still calling him master, and yet betrayed him. Now let's go to 27. Now when the morning was come, all the chief priests and elders of the people took counsel against Emmanuel to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. So these things began to happen. His... Uh, torture, and so on. Then Judas, which had betrayed him, when he saw that he was condemned, repented himself, and brought again the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned, and that I have betrayed the innocent blood. He had begun to have shame, bitterness, anger, frustration, self-denigration, self-hate because of what he had done. Now, take it up in the moment. He was thinking about the money. He was thinking about perhaps a claim. Who knows the selfish thoughts he was having, but he forgot who Christ was. He blocked that out over his personal goals and desires and purposes. And then when it came clear to him what he had actually done. He says, oh, what was I thinking? How did I do that? So he looked for sympathy for those who had paid him to betray Christ. And what did they say? They said, what is that to us? See you to that. That's, that's your problem, they said. So you sinned. You see to that. That's not our problem. What's that to us? So he didn't find any sympathy there. They had what they wanted. No honor among thieves or murderers. And he cast down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. So he was so upset, so frustrated, so angry at what he had done that he could see no way that he continued to live. He felt that depressed, that discouraged, that frustrated over what he had done. I don't think that we consider that side of Judas too much. But he came to grips with himself. He came to reality there. How was I thinking? What was I doing? Oh, how could I have put money ahead of Christ? But money was important to him. It was all about the money. And then suddenly it wasn't. Then he despised the money. Well, what happened to the money? 
He hanged himself, and the chief priest took the silver pieces and said, It is not lawful for to put them into the treasury because it is the price of blood. Killers for hire. So that money had been used to kill someone, or was about to be. So they says, We can't put that in the righteous treasury. They were hypocrites all the way through. They'd given the money to kill the man, and then they said, Well, that isn't, we shouldn't put that in the treasury at this point. So they took counsel, tried to figure out what they could do with the money, and bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. Wherefore, that field was called the field of blood, or a seldom, it says in another place, to this day. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, They took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him that was valued, whom they of the children of Israel did value. Now, thirty pieces of silver was a pretty good amount of money, but compared to the value of our Savior and Redeemer, <laughs> that isn't much money. That isn't much at all. And he gave them for the potter's field as the Eternal appointed me. So, strangers, sinners, would be buried there, uh, like we do the county buries people who are indigent, poor, homeless today. That's where they put people of that nature. So, that was the cause to which that money was later expended. <coughs> now, let's go for a moment here to Zechariah 11. We'll continue some of this in the Gospels in a moment, but uh, I want to go back here to Zechariah. Again, stating that <coughs> Zechariah is an end-time end book about the end-time church and culminates with uh, the two witnesses and their work with the gathering and then with Christ's return in 14. So it's very much an end-time book. <coughs> this chapter 11 has been a bit enigmatic and a little hard to understand. But I think we and many people uh, in the church of what's left of it have looked at this chapter and have certainly uh, applied it to today. Because it talks here in the beginning about open your doors, Lebanon, that the fire may devour your cedars. And then he talks about three major types of trees <coughs> whose forest would be cut down and how the howling of the shepherds would start in verse 3 because their glory is spoiled and the young lions uh, have no pride left. It's spoiled. So thus says the Eternal, my God, feed the flock of the slaughter. So we have seen the church pretty much slaughtered over the last 30 years, uh, whose possessors slay them and hold themselves not guilty. So we read about the ministry in Jeremiah 23, Ezekiel 34, and Malachi 1 and 2, who did not properly take care of the sheep and would not, and instead saw to their deaths through spiritual famine, pestilence, and the sword. And they that sell them say, Blessed be the Eternal. <laughs> oh, I'm worshiping God. I'm righteous. But they're uh, slaughtering the flock. Now, isn't that pretty much what the chief priests in Christ's day did? 
They claim that they were righteous through their fathers Abraham and Moses, even though Moses was a Levite, not a Jew. But uh, they thought they were righteous. This isn't our problem. What did the chief priest say when Judas came and accused them? <laughs> that's your problem, not ours. You're the one that sold him out. Those that sell them say, Blessed be the Lord, for I am rich, and their own shepherds pity them not. So Judas thought he was getting rich there. He was a shepherd in one sense, or had been appointed to be one, and took money over that. Then verse 6, Christ says, For I will no more pity the inhabitants of the land, says the Eternal, but lo, I will deliver the men, every one to his neighbor's hand, and to the hand of his king. So God says, I'm going to be hands-off on the church here for a period of time, and uh, they can betray one another, they can betray one another to the leaders, the rulers of the land, whatever. And we see some of that going on even right here at the moment. And they shall smite the land, and out of their hand I will not deliver them. So he says it's going to get pretty grim. And then he says, I will feed the flock of slaughter. So Christ says, I'll make it possible for the flock to be fed, those who have been being slaughtered. So the church has been in this terrible tribulation these 30 years, and uh, God has made it possible that they could be fed even during this time. But Amos said there would be a famine of the word, and it would be very, very hard to find. He says, not to the north, the east, or the south. The only place that it could be heard is in the southwest. That's the only quadrant that Amos does not cover. So that's where the voice will come from. So he said he would feed it, even you, O poor of the flock. And I took to me two staves, the one I call beauty, and the other I call bands, uh, grace and unity are the words in the Hebrew here for beauty and bands. So he gave, he gave pardon and mercy, or, or grace, and he also gave a certain amount of unity. And the flock then was fed. Then he says, Three shepherds also I cut off in one month, and my soul loathed them, and their soul also abhorred me. So like the three trees in verse 2, we have been anticipating that at some time God would cut off three major-sized shepherds, perhaps, like major trees, in a very short period of time, maybe even a 30, 29, 30-day 30 month. <clears throat> then he says, I will not feed you. That that dies, let it die. And that that is to be cut off, let it be cut off. And let the rest eat every one the flesh of another. So even what little he had been doing to feed the slaughter, the, the sheep of the slaughter, he says even that's going to die out. He says, I'm just hands off here for a while. And I took my staff, even grace, and cut it asunder. Not going to be in a forgiving mood. Uh, that I might break my covenant which I had made with all the people. So, he says, even the remainder is going to be reduced and be ineffective, just like I cut the covenant with all the people. Now, he made a covenant with us, we made with him at baptism, but we didn't follow him with our whole heart. And therefore, he cut us off. We betrayed him. We betrayed his trust. 
we were to be a vibrant, uh, responsive, loving bride. And instead, we were selfish and worldly and materialistic, put money ahead of God a lot of times, our jobs ahead of God, our careers ahead of God, or whatever it was that we wanted, we put ahead of God and became Laodicean and going through the motions, but not on fire for God and Christ in the kingdom of God. So he broke the covenant with all the people. And it was broken in that day. And so the, so the poor of the flock that waited upon me knew that it was the word of the eternal. So there are going to be a few poor of the flock who grasp and understand that all this that has happened has indeed come from God. He is the one who spewed us out. And I said to them, If you think good... Now this is... Who is he addressing here? The very few, the poor of the flock, that remained and realized that all of this that has occurred, that you and I have observed and experienced, came from God. Okay? Even the rebellion that we're experiencing at the moment. And I said to them, If you think good, give me my price, and if not, forbear. So they weighed for my price thirty pieces of silver. Are we willing to pay the price of thirty pieces of silver? Thirty pieces of silver were given to Judas, his price. What are we willing to give for Christ? What are we willing to take in place of Christ? What are we willing to do one way or the other? And I took the thirty pieces of silver and cast them to the potter in the house of the eternal. So this shows, I think, that there will be a very, very few poor of the flock who will not accept Christ's death, will not accept his price, his betrayal, his giving up to the enemy. A very, very few who will cast that down. So he uses what Christ went through and his betrayal on us here at the end of the age to show that we too have to consider Christ's worth. Is he only worth 30 pieces of silver to you? Or is he worth a whole lot more? What is redemption? What is salvation worth? What is, the, what is his death and resurrection worth to you? Now in the past, it wasn't worth much to us. We put materialism, materialism, our jobs, our careers, our families, even our children and our wives or husbands, ahead of God. We became lackadaisical. We went through the motions. We didn't even need 30 pieces of silver, did we? Did we not sell him out for nothing? Just for our own lusts, our vanity, our greed, our selfishness? That's all it took for you and me to betray Christ. Didn't take money. It just took what we wanted. Just because I want it. I'll put Christ out of my mind and do what I want to do. 
and then maybe wake up like Judas did and feel sorry for yourself later and beat yourself up because of what you've done. Haven't we all done that over and over and over again? Then I cut asunder my other staff, even unity, that I might break the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. So Judah and Israel are typical of the church today. And he has just broken it apart. And then he said he would raise up a foolish shepherd who would not take care of the flock and that uh, if he left the flock, the sword will be on his arm and on his right hand eye, in verse 17, his arm shall be cleaned right up and his right eye shall be utterly darkened. Go spiritually blind and his arm would be worthless to do anything. So Christ is brought into the end time church here. And what happened to him and the price that was paid. I think that's very, very important for us to consider in this, the middle of this story about Judas, who took 30 pieces of silver, literally, and literally betrayed Christ to the chief priests and so on. Now let's go on from there to uh, John 12 and verse 4. John 12 and verse 4. Let's flesh this story out a little bit more now that we've been brought into it personally in the end time church. Maybe it'll mean a little more to read the story about Judas and what he did and in that sense what our part in it has been and is. John 12 verse 4. Then said one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him, Why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? And one of the other Gospels, it talks about here, uh, Mary who took the ointment and anointed his feet and so on, and it says the disciples question, why doesn't this money be spent uh, for something given to the poor? But here, it was Judas Iscariot who was the one who said, hey, that's money wasted. Why wasn't this sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money bag and carried what was put therein. So he thought, if I could have that 300 in there, uh, I could get myself a nice little profit off of that. So he was thinking in terms of money, even prior to the time that uh, he would take 30 pieces of silver to betray Christ. Now, money is a root of all evil. Money is the big thing in America today, in our materialistic society. And there have been times that we've all put money ahead of God. I have no doubt of that. There are cases where people would take a job or not quit a job because money was more important than the Sabbath or many, many other things that we go through uh, to show that money indeed can be a god to us. And the ministry is shown as putting money ahead of God and uh, trying to line their own pockets there in Malachi 1 and 2 and so on. So it's not just us as members of the church, but also the ministry put money ahead of God. And that's an end-time book, the book of Malachi. So... Is, is Judas the only one that ever put money ahead of Christ? I don't think so. People who have not tithed or have 
spent their second tithe on other things and said, well, I'll pay it back later. Uh, borrowed from it, and then don't get around to repaying it. No, that's set aside for God. And the first tithe is set aside for God. And yet, there are many, many people who have been called church members in the end time who have not tithed and were against tithing or were too weak and didn't or whatever or didn't fully. It doesn't mean 7 or 8% or whatever I feel like this month. It's Tithe means 10%. <clears throat> so there are many, many ways that we have put money ahead of God, maybe working 14 or 16 hours a day to make money, and then our spiritual life goes to pot because we spend all of our energy and time trying to make money. You're trying to get ahead. So in that sense... Money becomes an idol to anybody who spends more time working at their job to make money and neglecting the spiritual. Didn't we all do that to one degree or another? So, aren't we all thieves, even as Judas was, putting money ahead of God? That's the particular sin that he committed there. Um uh, then let's go to Luke 22. <clears throat> Luke 22. Here, let's pick it up in uh, verse 3. Passover was coming. Then entered Satan into Judas, surnamed Iscariot, being of the number of the twelve. Have we really thought about that? Now, Judas, of his own self, was greedy. He was deceitful and desperately wicked, and even spoke nice things, mastered to Christ's face, and stabbed him in the back immediately. But part of what happened here was Satan. You know, Adam and Eve were getting along pretty well until Satan entered the picture, weren't they? And Satan was able to deceive them very, very quickly and get them to go what God had said. So from the very beginning, it is very easy for Satan to lead us down the garden path in a wrong way. We are so easily influenced. And Satan entered into Judas. He is the one who influenced Judas. He influenced Judas's nature that he had, but we all have that same nature, do we not? And Satan is very, very quick to leap on that and to use our human nature against us. That's why Paul said to take on the whole armor of God, because it is a spiritual battle we are fighting. That The principal world, Satan and his demons, are aligned to keep us away from God. Now, it's possible Judas might have been able or willing to repent of the chicanery and the deception that he was contemplating. But boy, when Satan got hold of him, that was the end of that. So he entered into him at that point when it was time to go betray him. And he went his way and communed with the Chad and gave him money. And he promised, swore on his mother's grave, if you will, and sought opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the multitude. He says, I'll, when the multitude's not around, I'll find a way, and when I think he can be taken without the multitude standing in your way. And isn't that one of the things that had always been a problem? 
Because when they would try to take him, the multitude would say, Oh no, he's healing, he's helping us. And they were afraid of the multitude. But this deal was made so that he would be taken in private with only his disciples there. And they brought enough people and swords and, and uh, war sticks that they could take him and not have to worry about the multitude. So Satan had a very, very deep part in this. You might ask a question, who's the real betrayer of Christ? Satan betrayed the Father and the Son, or he who would become the Son, in his original rebellion against God and his throne. And then he betrayed God and deity, the both of them, in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. So he is the real main betrayer, far more even than Judas, because it is mentioned very clearly here that uh, this was the case. Let's see that confirmed in John. Keep your finger here, but go back to John 6, verse 63. Yeah, it is the spirit that quickens the flesh profits nothing. We can accomplish nothing of ourselves. It is the spirit that makes us alive and quickens us. The words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you that believe not. Not just one, but some of you. For Emmanuel knew from the beginning who they were that believed not and who should betray him. Now, was Judas the only one that betrayed him that night? No. They all turned and fled when they saw he was in trouble. I don't know that guy. (laughs) Isn't that a betrayal? It's not quite as direct as Judas' betrayal. But saying, I don't know him. Now, isn't it important for salvation to know Christ? Didn't he say, if you don't take good care of other people... It's the same way you're going to treat me. And he's going to come and say, I know you not because you don't know me. Now, is it important to know Christ or is it not? I'd say it's salvational to know him. And yet all the disciples said, I don't know him. At that point, they were divorcing themselves from the idea of salvation. If you don't know God and you don't know Christ, you have no chance at salvation. So yes, they betrayed him. They said, I don't know him. Who is this guy? He's not my Savior. (laughs) uh, I'm running from him. Do we do that? John uh, 13, verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, he that receives whomsoever I send receives me, and he that receives me receives him that sent me. Indicating also that if he sends you and you don't receive him, uh, you're in trouble. When When Emmanuel had thus said, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you shall betray me. Then the disciples looked one on another, doubting of whom he spoke. Now, in the other uh, rendition that we read, 
it says, they said, is it me? Here it indicates that they looked at each other and said, it must be him. (laughs) They began to accuse one another. So they wondered first if it meant them. And they said, oh no, it can't be me. It must be him. That's a progression we go through. We, We think, could it be me? And then we begin to find ways to justify ourselves that we aren't sinners, but somebody else must be a sinner. So self-righteousness begins to enter the picture in all human thinking. We find a way to excuse ourselves, to justify ourselves, and to be righteous over much. That's why Christ said, when you pray, don't do it out in the open, don't brag about it, go into your closet and just make it between you and me. Because self-righteousness is so easy to overtake us. So they began to accuse one another. Now there was leaning on Emmanuel's bosom one of his disciples whom Emmanuel loved. Uh, John speaking of himself here. Simon Peter therefore beckoned to him that he should ask who it should be of whom he spoke. So Peter was a coward here, a little bit afraid to ask. And he says, well, John's got a close relationship with him. I'll sick, sick him on it. He then, lying on Emmanuel's bosom, said, Who is it? And Emmanuel answered, He it is to whom I shall give a sop when I have dipped it. And when he had dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. And after the sop, Satan entered into him. So Satan took over his thinking. Judas was probably sitting there, and he knew the deal he had made, but he was probably justifying himself and being self-righteous himself. And I think that's shown when he walked up to Christ and called him Master. But Satan entered and took over his thinking. He, he had opened the door for Satan to take over. Then Emmanuel said to him, That you do, do quickly. Let's get this done. And then the guy sitting there still didn't know what he was talking about. They thought, well, Judas has got the bag. Maybe they need something for the feast or whatever. So they didn't realize what was going on here. So Judas actually took of the bread and the wine, I think, as we saw in the book of Luke when I went through that subject. People say, well, Christ wouldn't have let Judas take care of that, take part of that. Yes, he did. He was still sitting at the table. He had had dinner. He drank the wine. And then, as they were relaxing, He was given the sop and sent away. Does Christ allow us to take the bread and the wine? Are we perfect? Do we still sin? Do we still come far short of the glory of God? And do we partake of it for a different reason than Judas? Do we partake of it out of great awe and humility for what Christ has done for us? Or do we come not having truly examined ourselves and admitted our faults and our failings and our self-righteousnesses and take it, in that sense, flippantly or unworthily? Or do we consider very, very deeply the we, I, have betrayed Christ, not just Judas? Are you beginning to feel a little brotherhood with Judas here? Have we not done the same thing that Judas did? Now, he's not one of our forefathers in that sense that we look to in a great positive way. 
But I think that on the other side of that coin, we need to deeply consider Judas, not just pass him off, but deeply consider him who betrayed Christ. For every one of us has betrayed him, daily for that matter. Uh, Notice uh, chapter 18 now of uh, John. John 18, and here beginning in verse 1. When Emmanuel had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the brook Cedron, which was a garden into which he entered and his disciples. And Judas also, which betrayed him, knew the place, for Emmanuel often went there with his disciples. Judas, then, having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, uh, he'd gone and told them where he would be and uh, got the army and came after it. Emmanuel, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said to them, Who are you looking for? Well, he didn't wait till they came to him. He saw them coming and said, Who are you after? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Emmanuel said to them, I am he. And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. So there they were, those who came to take him to be killed and the one who betrayed him to death. As soon then as he had said to them, I am he, they went backward and fell to the ground. Now every example in the Bible, when people are under the influence of God, they fall forward on their face. And examples of when they are under the influence of Satan, they fall over backward. And here Judas was with them, and they fell over backward to the ground. Now, he didn't take that opportunity to flee from them while they were on their back. But it does show here that they were under the influence of Satan the devil. So Satan is the one who was the main real betrayer of Christ, not Judas. We, in Judas' position, betray him daily when we sin. Then he asked them again, Who do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. I have told you that I am he. If therefore you seek me, let these go their way, that the saying might be fulfilled which he spoke, of them which you gave me have I lost none, except the one he said who betrayed him, which was Judas. The rest stayed with him. Now they betrayed him that night, but they repented. Now hopefully those who betrayed him that night and then repented are closer brothers to us than the brother that we are very close to, Judas, who betrayed him and then didn't repent of it. Which are you closest to, Judas or the others? We've all betrayed Christ, okay? We all have. So what's the next move? Do we repent or do we remain in betrayal? Now to Acts 1. This story of Judas is repeated here because the disciples had been left without Christ while they waited 50 days for Pentecost to come. And here in Acts uh, 1, let's pick it up in verse 18. Uh, Well, no, before that. He's talking about Uh, the mouth of David and the Holy Spirit spoke to him uh, before concerning Judas, which was guide to them that took Emmanuel. So, 
the Old Testament speaks of David, and it speaks of the betrayal of Christ. We'll get to that. For he was numbered with us. As I said at the very beginning, he was one of the disciples who became an apostle and who had been given the commission to preach the gospel. So he had been numbered with the apostles and had obtained part of this ministry, emphasizing what we saw there in Matthew 10. Now this man who was in the ministry purchased the field with the reward of iniquity, and falling headlong he burst asunder in the midst, and all his bowels gushed out. So how did he purchase the field? He took the money, he gave it back, and they then purchased this field of blood with that money. So in that sense, he is the one who purchased it by what he had done. And he hung there in that tree until his weakest part, his middle, his guts and his stomach and all, rotted first, the soft parts rot first, and all, he hung there until his bowels fell out. And nobody brought him down and saved him from where he was. And it was known throughout Jerusalem, inasmuch as that field is called in their proper, proper tongue, a seldoma, that is to say, the field of blood. So that field represented the blood of Christ that was shed. Now Psalm 69 is a reference. Let's go back there. Because it fits. Psalm 69 is referred to. Now this is a psalm of David, and it was about David's life. Save me, O God, for the waters are come into my soul. I'm about to drown here. I sink in deep mud. It's like I was in quicksand, where there is no standing. I'm coming to deep waters where the floods overflow me. I'm weary of crying. My throat is dried. My eyes fail while I wait for my God. So David was in trouble in his life. And he cried and cried and cried out to God, and he didn't seem to get an answer from God, and he had to wait, and he was having trouble with patience, and he was tired of crying, he was weary. Are we getting that way? Does this strike a chord? Is this familiar with us? They that hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. He said, I can't even count the people that hate me. They that would destroy me, being my enemies, wrongfully are mighty. So he says, people who are trying to take me, destroy me, ruin me, are mighty. They have some power. Then I restored that which I took not away. So he says, I tried to apologize. I tried to ask for forgiveness. But they were so arrayed against me that I couldn't restore even that which I hadn't done. Does no good to try to justify because he had been wrongly accused. <coughs> oh God, you know my foolishness and my sins are not hid from you. Now, he had sinned. He was a sinner. Uh, and yet Christ was not. But this psalm morphs into the story of Christ. And yet all of this applies to Christ except the sin. He had enemies who were powerful, who were killing him. Now, in one sense, yes, he did have sin. Not that he had perpetrated, but your sin and mine was up on him. So yes, it had become his sin. He took it on himself. 
So it even fits in that sense, Christ himself. Let them not... Uh, or let not them that wait on you, O eternal God of hosts, be ashamed for my sake. Let not those that seek you be confounded for my sake, O God of Israel. Because for your sake I have borne reproach, shame has covered my face. So David had received shame for some of the things he had done, and Christ had received shame for some of the things David and you and I had done. I am become a stranger to my brethren and an alien to my mother's children. Those in the church will even cast us out, saying we're fools. For the zeal of your house has eaten me up, and the reproaches of them that reproach you are fallen upon me. So those who thought they were being zealous were persecuting David. They persecuted Christ, and they'll persecute you and me. When I wept and chastened my soul with fasting, that was to my reproach. Didn't do any good. I made sackcloth also my garment, and I became a proverb to them. Uh, you know, here I am trying to repent and trying to be what I ought to be, and all I am is a proverb in their mouths. Someone they laugh at, someone they curse, swear against. They that sit in the gate speak against me. And I was the song of the drunkards. So he'll even get drunk and make fun of me, he said. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Eternal, in an acceptable time, O God, in the multitude of your mercy, hear me in the truth of your salvation. Isn't that the place we find ourselves in, brethren? That we have, as a church, come apart and each persecutes the other. Our brothers turn against us. And we try to turn to God, and yet we're still considered foolish and evil and crazy and sinful, and it does no good. Now, in an acceptable time, there's a time coming when Christ is going to hear, and all of our prayers that seem to have gone unanswered are going to be answered. In an acceptable time, O God, in the multitude of your mercy, Hear me in the truth of your salvation. Deliver me out of the mire, and let me not sink. Let me be delivered from them that hate me, and out of the deep waters where I'm about to drown. Is that the way we feel? Let not the water flood overflow me, neither let the deep swallow me up, and let not the pit shut her mouth upon me. I'm at the point of dying. I can't handle this. Hear me, O Eternal, for your loving kindness is good. Turn to me according to the multitude of your tender mercies. So here's a sinner crying out and asking for God's tender mercy. Hide not your face from me, your servant, for I am in trouble. Hear me speedily. We've read many scriptures in the prophets which talk about how God has turned his face from us. And this is the way David felt. It's the way Christ felt. Why have you forsaken me, Father? I'm in trouble. Hear me speedily. Help soon. You and I are praying that almost daily, are we not? Draw near to my soul and redeem it. Deliver me because of my enemies. You have known my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My adversaries are all before you. God isn't unaware of what we've been going through. Reproach has broken my heart. I am full of heaviness. And I look for some to... Take pity. But there was none. 
The only one Judas could look to for pity was the Pharisees and the chief priests, and they didn't show any pity. And for comforters, but I found none. Where do you look for comfort? Where do we? Where do I? Where do you look for comfort? It's only one place. They gave me also gall for my meat and my thirst. They gave me vinegar to drink. So it shows clearly this is a verse that was not only about David, but it was about Christ. And if it was about David a sinner, it's about us sinners, because the Psalms are prophets too. And this was brought up as a prophetic reading, as we talked about it earlier. Then he goes on talking about his enemies, and he says, verse 28, Let them be blotted out of the book of the living, and not be written with the righteous. But I am poor and sorrowful. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. In other words, take care of my enemies, those who would betray me. Satan, the demons, put them away, and those who have influenced themselves against us. And then I will praise the name of God with a song, and will magnify Him with thanksgiving. The fast of of sorrow will be turned into feasts of joy. The humble shall see this and be glad. The proud, the vain, the egocentric won't see it, but the humble will. And your heart shall live that seek God, the few. For the eternal hears the poor and despises not his prisoners. Didn't he even say there in Zechariah 11 that the, the small, few, poor of the flock will know that it came from me. That's what it says here. Let the heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves therein. For God will save Zion and will build the cities of Judah, those waste places, that they may dwell therein and have it in possession. And his servants shall inherit it. Uh, Let's quickly go to uh, Psalm 51.16. Consider Judas now. Many people feel that Judas uh, will go into the lake of fire. I don't know that that is the truth. I don't think that's the case. Uh, let's see Psalm here, 51. This is the Psalm of Repentance of David. We're all very familiar with it. But in here, he makes a very important uh, statement. Psalm 51. Uh, here I want verse 16. For you delivered not your sac- for you desire not sacrifice, else would I give it. You delight not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So he, David is saying, essence, you're not after sacrifice, you're after mercy on sinners. Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build you the walls of Jerusalem. And that's what he's called us to do here in the end time. And he said he will bless Zion and cause us to build the temple and to build Jerusalem. So God is not looking for to kill us, to destroy us. He's looking for mercy. Hosea 6 and verse 6. Hosea 6. I know it's back here. I'm almost there. Verse 6, For I desired mercy, 
and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Now, the context here is Ephraim departing from God, and the church departing from God. And he tells us that after he destroys us and smites us in the first part of this chapter, that he will turn it around and revive us and raise us up, and that we can live in his sight and give us the, the former rain and the latter rain because he deserves, desires mercy and not sacrifice. This is an end-time prophecy about the end-time church. He wants to show us mercy. He is mercy. That is one of his strongest characteristics. Uh, this is repeated in Matthew 9, verse 9. <clears throat> Christ picked it up and used it in teaching. Uh, and as Emmanuel passed forth from hence, he saw a man named Matthew. He said, follow me. Uh, and when the Pharisees saw him sit down with the publicans and sinners, verse 11, the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, why does your master eat with publicans and sinners? When Jesus heard that, he said to them, they that be whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. But go you and learn what that means. Why am I not dining and showing empathy with you, Pharisees? Why am I showing it to the poor and the sinners? I will have mercy and not sacrifice, for I am not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. So his overall attitude is one of mercy on anyone who has sinned, who is willing to turn to him and repent. Let's see another example of that in Matthew 12. He uses it again. Here in verse 1. That time, Emmanuel went on the Sabbath day through the corn. This is a case where they picked it and ate it. And then the Pharisees come and say that was illegal to do on the Sabbath. You can't pick corn or tear toilet paper off on the Sabbath. And then he used the example about how David and his men and how hungry they were. And the showbread was there. And they weren't legally supposed to eat of it, but they did uh, under those circumstances. And uh, he said, what about the priests? Don't they work on the Sabbath with sacrifices? I break the Sabbath every Sabbath. This is work, preparing and giving a sermon. But it's not held to my account. Verse 12, 5, Have you not read in the law how that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? It's not held to them. <clears throat> but here's someone here greater than the temple. He says, now, there's a lesson in this. But if you had known what this means, and they didn't, they only stood, you've got to keep the law and you will be punished if you break it in any way. If you had known what this means, I will have mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So God's prevailing attitudes are those of mercy. I'm a little later than usual, but we started late. Uh, I could go to Psalm 111, verses 1 through 4 and verse 29, where it talks about how His mercy endures forever. I could also go to Psalm 131, verses 1 through 26. And every one of those verses, every verse in that chapter, states something and then says, because His mercy endures forever. Now, 26 verses of that in a row ought to get through to us that God is very, very merciful. It's one of His main characteristics. 
I do want to go to Jeremiah 33 uh, as the last scriptural reference we'll use here. Jeremiah 33. This is preceded by chapter 32 where Jeremiah was instructed to buy a field as we were instructed to buy a place for God to uh, bring His people when they have a time of need. And it says of Jerusalem, not just of Anatoth, but of Jerusalem which was nearby. Verse 43 of chapter 32, The fields will be bought in this land whereof you say it is desolate. Without man or beast, it is given to the hand of the Chaldeans. Uh, It is the end time Jerusalem that is without man or, or beast. It is desolate. So, the word of God came in chapter 33 the second time while he was in prison. Uh, and God had done this. And he said, verse 3, Call to me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things which you don't know. Hidden things. For thus says the eternal God of Israel concerning the houses of this city and concerning the houses of the kings of Judah which are thrown down by the mounts and by the sword. They come to fight with the Chaldeans, but it is to fill them with the dead bodies of men whom I have slain in my anger and in my fury, and for all whose wickedness I have hid my face from this city. So God was allowing destruction to come because of sin upon the city of Jerusalem and upon the church today, which is typified by Jerusalem. Now what does he say? Verse 6, Behold, I will bring it health and cure... And I will cure them and will reveal to them the abundance of peace and truth. says to the remnant in Haggai, In this place will I bring peace. Got to get rid of the rebels first. And I will cause the captivity of Judah and the captivity of Israel to return and will build them as at the first. It started out good, went bad, it'll get good again. And I will cleanse them from all their iniquity, says he will in one day in Zechariah 3 or as a cloud in Isaiah 54, or no, 50, uh, what am I saying? Isaiah 44. I will cleanse their iniquity, whereby they have sinned against me, and I will pardon all their iniquities, whereby they have sinned, and whereby they have trespassed. Is God merciful? Is He willing, after punishing us and spewing us out, to forgive us and to have pity and mercy? It shall be to me, to God, a name of joy, a praise and an honor before all the nations of the earth, which shall hear all the good that I do to them. You're going to set them up in the Garden of Eden, as he said. And they shall fear and tremble for all the goodness and for all the prosperity that I procure to it. They're going to see what God has done to his end-time church and how he's turned and blessed it. <clears throat> they won't repent, but they'll be in awe of it. Thus says the Eternal, Again there shall be heard in this place, which you, sh- you say shall be desolate, without man and without beast, even in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate, without man and without inhabitant and without beast. Again it will be heard the voice of joy, the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride. Christ and His bride singing together, as it says in Zechariah. The voice of them that shall say, Praise the Lord of hosts, for the eternal is good, for his mercy endures forever. And of them that shall bring the sacrifice of praise, not sacrifice of animals, but sacrifice of praise, into the house of the eternal. 
For I will cause to return the captivity of the land as at the first, says the Eternal. So peace is going to come again because of God's mercy. And it's going to come on the end time gathering of the remnant of the church. <clears throat> it is so self-righteous to condemn Judas when we betray Christ every day. We've been pretty close brothers with Judas, unfortunately. Sometimes we're closer to him than we are to Peter and James and John and Bartholomew and the ones who betrayed him and then repented. Because so often we allow Satan and our human nature to betray us and then we betray Christ's trust because we said we would stand and live and be sinless before him. But sometimes we betray him not even for money, just because I want to. Just because I want to do this or I want to do that. Just because of our human nature, our lust, our covetousness, our desire to have something more than putting what God needs done ahead of what we want done. So he is a close brother of ours, and I never thought of him that way. In the way he acted, in the way that he allowed Satan to use him, we don't want to be that close a brother to Judas. Now, Peter and James and John and the others did repent. <clears throat> they became converted, and they went on to do a great work for God. And those are the brothers that we want to get closer to. Does that mean Judas is forever gone? I doubt it. I think he'll come up in the great white throne judgment. Remember, he was never converted. At the time when he hung himself, he hadn't been converted, as had not any of the other apostles. It wasn't until the Holy Spirit came that they were converted and then began to do a work for God. So if our, if our closeness to Judas has been too great, and our closeness to the others has not been as great, then we need to do as James and Peter and John did, and repent and become converted and turn to God and put Him first in our lives in every way so that we can be a part of the kingdom of God, remembering that Christ and the Father are merciful and their mercy endures forever, perhaps even for Judas himself. So that means that even we who have betrayed Christ in the way that we have lived, the way that we have acted, can be forgiven, and that leaves room for even Judas to be forgiven, because are we not those who have followed in his footsteps and betrayed our Savior? Yes, we are. We've got to get rid of our self-righteousness and realize that we betrayed Christ just as much as Judas did. We have allowed Satan to use us, <clears throat> so put on the whole armor of God. And look to your brother Judas and repent and become like your elder brother and those who followed him and make way into the kingdom of God. Others repented of betraying Christ. Will we?